Episode 35, Part 2 of Navigating Culture Shock, for those moments when you can't stand your host country's culture. This is the Expat Mom Podcast, a podcast for expat moms around the world who want to feel better and improve their emotional health as they navigate the unique challenges of living and mothering abroad. I'm your host, Jenny Linton. I'm a certified life coach, a mom to four daughters, and married to a U.S. diplomat. I've lived in six countries on four continents. I know what it's like to feel stuck emotionally, and I know how to get unstuck. I'm excited to share with you some tools to help you feel less discouraged, improve your relationships, and increase your confidence. Welcome back to the podcast. Thank you to everyone who has left reviews. I read every single one. If you haven't had a chance to leave one, I would love you to take about 30 seconds and leave one. It helps me know the impact the podcast is having, and it also helps other people find the podcast. This last weekend was Easter, and as many of you have experienced, holidays abroad can sometimes require a little bit of creativity. As you can imagine, Easter is not a widely celebrated holiday in Shanghai. But since Easter is part of our American culture, our family culture, and our religious culture, we wanted to find some ways to celebrate as a family. We couldn't find white eggs to dye or those pause dye pellets. So we used brown eggs and we made our own dye with food coloring. It wasn't perfect, but it worked fine. We couldn't find jelly beans or chocolate bunnies or some of the traditional Easter candies that we're used to. But we were able to find little gummy candies and other things that work just as well in our plastic Easter eggs for our Easter egg hunt. And that's what we're going to talk about today. Tools to learn to navigate living in another culture. In part one of our series on culture shock, we discussed what culture shock is. It's the uncomfortable emotions we experience living in another culture from our own. With new environment, new rules, new food, new people, new customs, new paradigms, new driving rules. And we discussed how culture shock is simply the healthy brain's reaction to something new and different than we're used to. Understanding what's happening during the experience of culture shock and knowing that this is normal and healthy can help us remember that this won't last forever and that there's nothing wrong with us or our host country. Understanding this is the first step. However, there are some deliberate things that we can do to help ourselves move through the stages of culture shock with more speed, more confidence, and less frustration. Today, in part two of our culture shock series, we're going to cover some tools that you and your family can use as you transition to another country. These tools apply whether this is your first overseas assignment or your 12th. They also apply whether you just arrived to the country or whether you've been there several years. This topic is part of our April focus on how to navigate transitions in expat life. We'll have a three-part series on culture shock and repatriation. We'll also be discussing how to support kids transitioning to new schools and how to deal with stuff in frequent or international moves. Before we jump into our topic, I want to let you know about a free resource that I have. I know what life is like as a busy mom, so I decided to create something that would help expat moms improve their emotional health and their relationships and wouldn't require very much time. Every week, I carefully craft a short tip or perspective that's designed to be read in about a minute. I call it One Minute Wisdom. I want to share with you how One Minute Wisdom helped one expat mom. She shared that she was having a lot of contention in her marriage. Her husband was very critical. One of the one minute wisdom emails talked about self-betrayal and how often we justify our own bad behavior because of the poor behavior of others. While it may be justified, our own bad behavior never makes us happy, and it certainly doesn't increase connection. 
the email suggested how empowering it can be to choose who you want to be regardless of how the other person acts. Not because it will change the other person, but because it feels better to act in integrity with who you want to be. This woman made some simple but deliberate decisions to change some of her actions with her husband. And as a result, she's feeling a bit closer to him and feels more integrity with herself. You can sign up for one minute wisdom in the show notes. It's totally free and it's delivered directly to your inbox one time a week. I'm really excited about our topic today because I have had so many experiences enjoying other cultures as well as clashing with them. Last time I outlined the five stages of culture shock, and I explained the healthy brains experience in each of the stages. I want to give you some suggestions for how to navigate each stage and improve your experience with culture shock. So if you remember, stage one is the honeymoon stage when you first arrive and everything seems exciting and amazing. This is a fantastic time to capitalize on your natural interest and enjoyment of the country. While it can be tempting when you first arrive to hunker down and try to get your home organized, it's actually an ideal time to get out and about. Your brain is creating new neural pathways for your experience in the new country. You want to create as many good experiences as possible, and this is the time when things feel particularly rosy. Get familiar with the city, explore, enjoy wandering around, meet new people, try new foods. The more good experiences you have during this period of adjustment, the more you will lay down neural pathways in your brain for a positive association with your new culture. I remember soon after we moved to Mexico, I tried my first pastor tacos. Oh, they were heavenly. It's a combination of this tender, roasted, adobo kind of flavored chicken with fresh pineapple and onions and cilantro on hot corn tortillas. It is amazing with the mystery green sauce that they serve with it. It left me hankering for more. And even now, many years later, I still find myself craving those tacos. Another practical thing you can do during this time is to keep a journal. It's important to write down what you're thinking and experiencing. Pictures are another great way to document it. While our perceptions of the new culture in this point are exaggerated, they're also more positive and can serve as an important reservoir of experience and feelings in later stages of culture shock. One of my favorite ways to do this is to keep a three-year journal. You can buy them in online and in-person bookshops. Each page has three years worth of journaling, and you just write one or two lines a day. Then... The next year, on that same day, you can look back and see what you were doing and thinking on that day the year before. This is a really useful and easy thing for expats to do that help trigger past experiences. When you're having a hard time, you might remember a rosier time in the past and be reminded of some of the good. When you look back and see that you were having a hard time in the past, it can help you see how much you've grown. It's powerful to see progress. In stage two of culture shock, We experience the rejection phase where expats feel the most homesickness, frustration, and negative emotions. As we discussed in the previous podcast, it's normal to experience some negative emotion when the brain encounters some dissonance. In other words, things that are different than the way it's accustomed to experiencing them. Most of us don't enjoy feeling negative emotions. And since we've been socialized to try to repress them, react to them, or distract ourselves from them, our negative feelings usually grow when we don't allow ourselves to simply feel them. Many people end up trying to distract themselves by eating or over-drinking or watching more TV, sleeping more, shopping more, or doing whatever it takes to distract themselves from the emotions. 
But when we do this, it doesn't help the negative emotions resolve. It simply perpetuates them and it defers them temporarily. It also often creates new negative emotion because now we've wasted time or gained weight or spent more money than we wanted to. Some people just give up and stay home or avoid interacting with people. They try to keep living in their home country through technology and surrounding themselves only by people that are like them. The result is that they're never able to fully feel comfortable or enjoy their host country. Other people might react to culture shock with angry outbursts at people from their host culture or even express their anger by proxy through irritation towards family members or colleagues. Then they feel guilty or more isolated from others when they get negative reactions due to their angry outbursts. The best way to handle the negative emotions that come up from culture shock seems almost too simple to some people, but it is just to allow ourselves to feel them. When we process an emotion, it usually dissipates in about 90 seconds or less. When we repress or distract ourselves, the emotions stay and they grow. You can learn more about how to process an emotion in episode four. This is the basic process. You name your emotion. For example, you might say, I'm feeling overwhelmed. Then rather than getting all cerebral and thinking your emotion, drop into your body and notice how it feels. Emotions are simply sensations caused by neurotransmitters or chemicals in your brain that are intended to send us a message. We can help our brain know we got the message by noticing the sensation in our body. Is your heart racing? Are your muscles tight? Where do you feel the sensation? Is it in your stomach? Is it in your heart? I used to be really irritated when I would see scooters run red lights. It's dangerous, and they've almost hit my daughters and I on more than one occasion. At first, I found myself complaining about it to my husband and to my friends and making confused or frustrated faces at the scooters when they zoom by. But surprise, my frustration and complaining did nothing to change the scooters running through red lights. The only impact it had was making me feel more frustrated when I was walking or driving. After the first few times, I started reminding myself to just process the irritation rather than react to it. When a scooter almost hit my car as I was turning left on a green light, I took a deep breath and noticed I was just feeling irritated. I allowed myself to feel irritated. My stomach felt tight. My jaw clenched up. My arm muscles felt tight. And amazingly, within about 90 seconds, the irritation had faded. I didn't feel the need to complain about it or make faces at the scooter driver. Instead, I moved on and talked to my daughter instead. This is the amazing part of processing your emotions. They pass so much quicker when you simply feel them instead of react or repress them. That doesn't mean that I won't feel irritated when a scooter runs through a red light again. I probably will. But the more we learn to process our feelings, the more easy and natural it is. The brain learns that it's not such a terrible threat to feel negative emotion. And so you don't feel as much stress around feeling bad. Phase two is often the most intense with negative emotions and our brains want to get out of those emotions. But ironically, phase two is the worst time to try to shift your perspective. Your feelings are intense and trying to shift them at this point can be challenging and sometimes even counterproductive. The more you simply allow your feelings, the more quickly you will be ready to move to stage three. Now, there is one caution that I want to give you. If you find yourself sliding into self-pity, you have moved out of processing and moved into wallowing. At this point, you may want to make sure that you're giving equal airtime to the positive. I am not saying to give yourself a pep talk or a guilt trip. 
Some people may try to force themselves to think positive about everything in the new culture. While positive thinking is a valuable skill, being inauthentic with yourself actually slows the adjustment to a new place, and it often backfires by causing you to eventually break down or explode later when things have accumulated to a point that is way too big to manage. Allowing yourself to feel some negativity is not only normal, but it's important. However, reminding yourself that there are good and bad about your new host culture is also important so that the brain doesn't go into all or nothing thinking and focus only on the bad. I find that taking a piece of paper and drawing a line down the middle can be helpful. I list the hard things on the left column, and when I've finished, I write down some positive things. If I can't remember any, I open that journal I talked about from stage one, and I look back at pictures and journaling that help me remind myself of positive experiences and relationships that I've made. The goal is not to feel awesome about your host country at this point, but simply to give equal airtime to both the challenging and the rewarding of your new host country. Just as your brain prioritized the positive in stage one, it's prioritizing the negative in stage two. So deliberately balancing the data your brain is filtering out can be useful. The third stage of culture shock is transition. This is the phase when our brain is feeling less acutely threatened and stressed and is more willing and open to explore solutions. I often know when I've reached this phase because I feel a lightning. My negative feelings are a bit less intense. This is the phase of culture shock that is most beneficial to work on a mindset shift. One of my favorite tools for dealing with culture shock and irritation is getting curious. The brain forms connections about how the world should work through our past experiences. So it makes sense that when we're confronted with a situation that goes against how we've been used to thinking about the world, we're going to resist it. The brain likes to stay comfortable and rely on what it's used to thinking. The problem is that when we're in a new culture and it's something we can't change, if we keep believing that things should be a certain way and they aren't, we feel miserable. One of the ways we can challenge our thinking is simply to get curious. Instead of assuming what the other culture should or shouldn't do, it's interesting to ask questions like, I wonder why they do it this way, or what are the benefits of this for them, or are there any benefits for me? When we give our brains a question to answer, it immediately goes to work looking for the answer. In the example I shared earlier about scooters running a red light, the reason I'm irritated is that I think they shouldn't run the red light. While this feels true to me and makes reasonable sense based on my own thinking and culture, as I begin to get curious and ask questions, I begin to open my mind to different perspectives. As I ask myself, why do they do it this way? What are the benefits for them? My brain comes up with all sorts of interesting answers. They may think it's perfectly acceptable. They've always done it that way. And police don't enforce anything different. Traffic can be pretty crazy in Shanghai. And riding a scooter where you don't have to wait at lights allows people an option to get from one place to another faster than you could in a car. Curiosity may not lead to complete acceptance of a practice or perspective, but it often lessens irritation about it because we understand it more. Curiosity allows me to see that others aren't deliberately doing something bad or wrong on purpose. They simply see things differently. Sometimes we may need to go beyond asking these questions and read or study or ask around to get more information about our host country's culture and past in order to understand deeper nuances. Let me share an experience that I had with this. When we lived in Beijing, China, many years ago, I took an international flight from the U.S. to China by myself with a five-year-old, a very busy two-and-a-half-year-old, 
and a newborn. The travel time was about 24 total hours, and it was a difficult flight with potty runs trying to juggle a baby in my arms. I had crying kids who were jet lagged, and there just wasn't enough of me to go around. When we finally landed and the seatbelt sign went off, I was so relieved. But immediately, everybody stood up as they often do. And as I was trying to get the kids ready to deplane, people behind me were grabbing baggage and almost dropping it on my kids, shoving past us, bumping my kids all over the place, elbowing through and over us to get ahead of us even though they were seated behind us. My children were stressed and crying with everybody shoving and pushing them around. And not only did no one offer to help, people thoughtlessly bumped us around. When we finally got off the plane and managed to get everything onto the luggage cart, people again began shoving past me into an elevator. I was there with three young children and a huge cart of luggage waiting in line. I ended up having to wait for four different groups who shoved ahead of me in the elevator because I couldn't quite move quickly enough with my cart and my children. I honestly could not understand how another culture could be so thoughtless and treat a young mom with three little children this way. It seems so disrespectful. That year, I read the book Wild Swans. It's a beautiful book that details the true story of three generations of women. One woman who had emigrated from China to the U.S., her mother who had been a red guard during the Cultural Revolution, and her mother who was a concubine to a warlord before the Cultural Revolution. As I came to better understand the modern history of China through the eyes of these women, for the first time I understood why people might cut in line or rush ahead of little children. In its modern history, China had been a difficult place with shortages and mistrust. I could finally understand how people might feel like they have to just look out for themselves, and that they have to get what they need with scarce resources and so many people vying for them. In their history, they often felt they couldn't trust others. So while I still didn't agree that it was kind or respectful to cut in line, I could understand more about why they might do it. Approaching this with curiosity allowed me to feel more understanding and compassion instead of irritation and incredulity. As we're willing to approach cultural differences with curiosity, we may even be surprised that we come to like cultural differences more than our home country after getting used to them. My husband lived in Spain for a few years. They stay up late, get up later, go to school later, and they take a long two to three hour lunch slash nap during the day. At first, my husband was amazed that even big companies allowed their employees to take this time off in the middle of the day. Children would come home in the middle of the school day and then go back after they ate and napped. It seemed so inefficient to him. But over time, my husband began to see some of the benefits. Families ate every meal together. And as a result, many families were very close. He also noticed that many people didn't seem as stressed and rushed because they had time to slow down and rest and connect with other people. Rather than the rushed pace of many developed countries, Spain fostered a more slow and nurturing environment for relationships and emotional health. He realized that he appreciated the break in the day, and he went out for the second part of the day more refreshed. What had once irritated and surprised him became something he appreciated and enjoyed, and even misses from Spain. Simply by being curious and being willing to be open to the benefits of something, he was able to adapt more quickly. Sometimes we may not ever fully understand or like things, but we simply learn to adapt our life to function despite them. In Ecuador, my husband and I soon learned that people were chronically late, and not just a little bit. Sometimes we would show up to a party at church, and nobody was there. 
Within about 40 minutes to an hour, people started to trickle in. By the two-hour mark, when we had planned to leave, the party was finally starting to get going. People were setting out food, and people were finally turning on the music. My husband and I were really surprised. But over time, we realized it's best to show up about an hour or so after they say and plan to stay for several hours. Once we managed our expectations and adjusted our behavior, we weren't as surprised or disappointed. Even if we can't change our understanding of something, we can change our behavior towards it to make it more accommodating. If you recall in last week's episode, I share statistics of expat adjustment. About 60% of expats never fully adjust to their host country. About 10% of expats integrate so fully that they become culturally assimilated. And about 30% of expats adapt to some aspects of the culture that they see as positive and keep some of their own ways of seeing and operating in the world. Those who never adjust have a hard time getting past stage two or three because they don't use the tools that we've discussed on this podcast and because they leave before ever being willing to allow themselves to pass through the stages. The 10% of expats that become assimilated often have a very difficult time if they try to return to their home country. Those who are most successful in navigating culture shock are those who learn to adapt to many aspects of the new culture, but also keep some of their own ways of operating and seeing the world. A good example of this might be while my husband and I learned to show up two hours late to a party in Ecuador and planned to stay for a while, we didn't adopt the idea that this was the quote unquote right way to do it. It was simply one way to have a party. We still continued to recognize that being on time in other situations was a good idea. In addition, although we learned to stop and look for scooters at the red lights, it didn't mean we started running red lights in every country we lived in. And although we respect Buddhism and enjoy visiting Buddhist temples, we continue to enjoy our American and Christian Easter traditions the best we can abroad, even if it looks a bit different. Learning to accept cultural differences and compensating for them when needed does not mean we agree with cultural differences. As we get curious and adjust our behavior and mindset to compensate for cultural differences, we are able to more quickly move to stage four of culture shock, which is feeling adjusted and adapted and at home. This is a really nice stage to be at. In stage four, we don't have the same high intensity of emotion on a regular basis as it relates to our host culture, either positive or negative. One of the things that can be useful in this phase is to reflect on your past frustrations about the culture and how your experience with them may have evolved. This can give us confidence for future culture clashes. This is also a good phase to deliberately create new positive experiences by traveling or exploring in your host country. Novel experiences help fortify those positive neural pathways about the host culture. And if you're keeping that three-year journal that I mentioned regularly, you'll be naturally reminded of the good and the bad experience you've had. When irritations crop up and pop us back to stage two, we can rely on our confidence gained from going through similar frustrations and again pull out our processing emotion skills rather than trying to avoid the negative feelings. We can have compassion on ourselves and patience with others. As the emotions lessen in intensity, we can begin to get curious by asking, why do they do it this way? Or is there any benefit to this? Eventually, we can learn how to adjust our behavior to compensate for the differences as needed. Next time, we will address the last stage of culture shock. Part three of our series will discuss how to best adapt to repatriation. Repatriation is a little bit like experiencing culture shock again, although many people report that repatriation is even harder than culture shock. We'll discuss how to navigate this next time. 
Before we finish, let's do our expat exit strategy. For those of you who are new, this is the part of the podcast where we apply what we learned on the podcast immediately to our own lives. So take a minute and think about something that irritates you about the country you live in. Imagine yourself in that scene for a minute. Why are you so irritated about it? Allow yourself to feel some irritation. Notice where it feels in your body. Allow yourself to feel it until it's gone. When the irritation isn't as strong, consider asking yourself some of the questions we discussed. Why do they do it this way? Is there any benefit of this for them or for me? Culture shock and cultural clashes can be a big issue for expats. Bring one of your cultural pet peeves to a free coaching call. I would love to help you find more peace about it. I only have a few free mini coaching spots each week, so sign up before they're gone. I look forward to meeting you. If you like what you're learning on this podcast, please share this episode with a friend. I wish that I had had these tools a lot earlier in my life, and I'd love to pass them along to more people who can benefit. I also appreciate when you leave reviews for the podcast. It helps me know my listeners better and understand what you find useful. It also helps the podcast grow. You can find more free resources to improve your relationships and your emotional health on my website at theexpatmom.com and on my Instagram page at theexpatmomcoach.